You guys look better after an extra hour of sleep. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, uh, we have been in the process of um, sort of going through some of the parables of Jesus. We've been doing this for the last several weeks now, and part of what we have to understand as we're looking at these stories that Jesus told is that I am just going through and picking and choosing the ones that I want to do. I'm not doing them in any order. And so because of that, you run the risk of losing the context of what's going on. So today, before we really jump in, I want to give you a sense of the context of where we're going to be today because we're coming now to the end of Jesus's ministry. We're coming now to the time where uh, he is uh, about to go to the cross, and he saves a lot of his best stories for that last week or two of his life, and we're going to kind of get a glimpse of that, but, but in order to understand what's happening in today's story, you're going to really have to picture Palm Sunday. You have to realize that Jesus gathers his closest associates, the guys called his disciples, and he gathers these guys outside of the city of Jerusalem, and it's about to be Passover week, and he says, we're going into the Passover, but here's what I want you to do. He takes a couple of the guys, and he pulls them aside, and he says, I want you to just go into town, and when you get inside the city gate, you're going to find this donkey um, tied up, and I want you to just untie the donkey and bring it to me. And the guys look at him as if to say, that doesn't seem like a very Christ-like thing to do. You're telling us to steal a donkey? And he says, don't worry. If anybody asks you about it, you just say the master has need of it, and they'll give it to you. And so that's exactly what they do. They go into town. They untie this donkey. Some guy says, hey, that's my donkey. What are you doing? They said, the master has need of it. He goes, no problem. Take it. And they take it out to him. And Jesus climbs aboard this young donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem. He goes through the main gates of the city, and as he begins to approach the city, the crowds of people that are coming for the Passover are seeing him, and they're getting excited. You have to understand Passover in Jerusalem, even to this day, is a massive, huge, big deal. At the time of Jesus, there was this anticipation around Jesus that maybe, just maybe, this guy is the Messiah that we have been hearing about for hundreds and hundreds of years who's going to be coming one day, and he is going to set us free from tyranny. He's going to set us free from oppression. He's going to wipe out those who have been ruling over us, and he's going to take his throne in Jerusalem. And so when they see Jesus riding in on a donkey exactly as the prophet said the Messiah would ride into town, they get excited and the streets are packed with people, packed. Just, just imagine, say, the Rose Parade. Uh, and if you're down there on New Year's Eve for the Rose Parade and getting ready on New Year's morning, the crowds are just pouring in and there's nowhere to go and you're just standing close. That's the way it is in Jerusalem on Passover week. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, the crowds begin to see him and people begin to shout and they're calling out to him. And now there's a big ruckus going on and people are seeing that he's coming into town and they begin to pull off their cloaks and throw them on the ground so that even the donkey that he's riding on 
Babylon doesn't have to step on the dust. And they're pulling out palm branches and they're throwing the palm branches down and they're lining the streets with their own clothing and with the palm tree branches so that the donkey is walking over this and they're shouting. And as the crowd gets to a roar, suddenly you hear it from the back over there somewhere. You hear a guy, he begins to shout out, Hosanna! Hosanna, and as he shouts Hosanna, there's an echo from over here, Hosanna, 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 and it's coming from every direction, and the words Hosanna means save us now. They're they're shouting, save us, save us now. This is the time. We believe that you're the Messiah. We believe that you're the one who has come to save us. Save us now. Please save us now. And they can't wait for him to just come in and take over. And they're shouting out, glory to the son of David. And they're praising him. And they're dancing in the streets. And they're shouting, save us now. Save us now. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this incredible, incredible scene is happening. And while this incredible scene is happening, and obviously he is won over the crowd, the religious leaders on their balconies are looking out upon this and shaking their heads. Finally, he makes his way to the temple when he goes into the temple gate, there he sees it in the courtyard. There's, there's these tables and tents that have been set up in the temple courtyard, just like every year, where they're, they're selling and exchanging money. You see, if you, if you came to Passover in Jerusalem, you couldn't use your own money to give an offering. You had to use temple money. And the temple money was only used in the temple. And so any money to be used in the temple, you had to actually buy it. It was like an exchange rate deal. And they were just getting over on the people, gouging them. So it was, you know, it was you're getting 10 cents on the dollar for what you're buying for this temple money. And they're just raking it in and making money hand over fist. On top of that, they have these lambs for sale. They have doves for sale because there are sacrifices that have to be made. Now, you may have brought a lamb. You may have brought a dove, but it doesn't matter because yours has not been approved for sacrifice. So you're going to have to buy one of these from us. It's been approved for sacrifice. And it's 20 times the cost of the one that you brought before you came in. And they're just getting over on the people. And Jesus begins to just express anger. He begins to turn the tables over, tear down the tents. He's throwing the money across the temple courtyard. There's this huge ruckus, and and he takes a whip and begins to crack this whip and run around and chase these guys out of the temple courtyard. He says, you're making my father's house a den of thieves. Get out of here. And this incredible scene happens, and now they're mad. And so you have... The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, all of the temple employees, all of these people who have been making their living off of the people, and they're watching this happen, and they're going, who does this guy think he is? And so they literally come to him, and they ask him that question. We see what you're doing. By what authority are you doing this? Who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are coming in here and, and upsetting our business? Who do you think you are taking the place of a religious leader and speaking like you have authority? Who do you think you are allowing the people to bow down and praise you as they should only bow down and praise God? Who do you think you are? And that's what's happening as we open Matthew chapter 21 today. The religious leaders are saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? What are you trying to do? How do you think you have the authority to do this? So if you haven't done so already, open to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, and we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 21, and it's tense. And everybody is on edge. And people are upset. And Jesus has just, to put it lightly, made a scene. And we're going to pick this up in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. They say to him, who do you think you are? And then he answers. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. This is the point in Jesus' ministry where his tactics change dramatically. Up until now, if you've been reading in the Gospels, what you see is basically Jesus trying to fly under the radar. What you see is Jesus basically saying to people things like, hey, don't tell anybody who I am. He says it over and over again. He heals somebody, casts out a demon, performs some kind of a miracle, and the people are like, wow, you must be the son of God. And he says, don't tell anybody who I am. And when the crowds gather because they hear about the miracles and they hear about the great stories and the preaching that he's doing and the crowds get so big and he's fed 5,000 and another time he's fed 4,000, they heard about the time that he calmed the storm, they heard about the way that he just touched the coffin and the dead rose, they, they've heard about the way that he, he could just uh, spit and put, make mud from the spit and put it in the eyes of a blind man and the blind man could see. And they have heard these stories now for three years. This has been going on. And they're like, wow, who is this guy? And he's been basically sending the crowds away. He's been basically saying, hey, keep it down. Hey, don't make a big deal out of this. And when the crowds get too big, he leaves. He disappears. When they come and they say, we want to make you king, all of a sudden he's gone. They don't know where he went. And he keeps disappearing. When they go looking for him, often he's away in the wilderness or in a garden somewhere praying and they can't find him. He, he's actually doing the opposite of what almost every religious leader since him has done. And that is we always try to draw a big crowd. Jesus, when he sees a big crowd, goes out of his way to say something so offensive that they will leave. That's what he does. Like, have you ever had people that come to your house and they stay too long? 
They won't leave, and you're thinking, how do we get rid of these people? I don't know, maybe if I start to snore, maybe they'll leave. I don't know, maybe if I start to insult their children, maybe they'll leave, I don't know. Jesus begins to push the crowds away, and that's been his MO all the way. That's what he's always done. And now he's coming to the point where he's pulling the cover off, and he's saying, I wanna show you why I came. His, his stories from this point on become much more direct. They become much more pointed. This is the point where his tactics change. Before he was saying things like, my time has not yet come. Now his time has come and he knows it. Now he had been speaking to his disciples for some time about this. He had told them, when we go to Jerusalem, the son of man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners and they will kill me. And they thought it was just another one of his stories. They thought it was just another one of his illustrations. They thought it was symbolic. Never even occurred to them that he could be killed. After all, he's the Messiah and the Messiah has come to deliver. The Messiah has come to rule. So how could he possibly mean that they're really gonna kill him? So they just shrugged their shoulders and go, you know, half the stuff he says we don't understand and they would just let it go. But now they're going into Jerusalem and he's just told them again, when we get into Jerusalem, the Son of Man is gonna be betrayed into the hands of sinners and they're gonna kill me. See, when all those people were shouting and screaming and praising him, what they didn't understand is that he was not riding into town for his coronation he was riding into town for his execution. See, we have this picture that, that these guys came with torches and clubs and they grabbed him and they tied him up and dragged him off. Nobody took Jesus. Jesus gave himself, okay? This is important. Jesus laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. This was his strategy. He told them going in, when I come into town, I'm coming for a reason, and it's to make enough of a stink that they will finally have enough of me. They'll finally arrest me, and I will finally pay the price. And so he's starting to amp up his rhetoric a little bit. These are the last opportunities he's gonna have to speak to some of these people. And he's specifically now speaking to these religious leaders who have come to him and said, who do you think you are? And he says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a story. And you know they rolled their eyes. You know that when he said, let me tell you a story, they went, oh, great. Another story. What's this one about? A farmer? Is this one, you know, what is this one about? And he begins to tell them about this man who has two sons. And so the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21 is not subtle at all. You don't have to scratch your head and go, huh, I wonder what he's talking about. Its meaning is totally clear. And just in case you didn't get it, Jesus spells it out. Here's what he's saying to them. You guys say all of the right things. You you smile and you tell people that you're doing the will of the Father, but when it comes time for action, you never deliver. You're like that second son who, who when the father uh, says, hey, I want you to go out and work in the vineyard, he says, yes, sir, I'll do it. And then as soon as his dad turns away, he gets out his Xbox and sits down and he never is seen again, right? He's saying to them, that's you guys. 
You're like the second son. And they know that's what he's saying. When it comes to action, they don't deliver. He says, you know what? The tax collectors who you hate so much, the whores who you love to, to malign, they're getting into the kingdom of heaven. These people that you see that you always wonder, why am I hanging out with these people? These people, they're getting into the kingdom of heaven way before you'll ever even get to sniff it, you hypocrites. They may have rejected the father at first, but when they came to their senses, they've now come to believe and follow him. You, you people, you have all the looks of righteous people, but you actually live for your own glory, not God's. And when it came to call you out for your sin, you didn't even have the decency to be remorseful about it. And just in case he wasn't clear enough with them, he tells a second story. And this one begins in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. I love that. He will bring, he uses the W word twice. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him his proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? What a thing to say to a bunch of pastors. Have you guys not ever read the Bible? Did you, did you never read what the scripture says? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls in this stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought uh, to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. They understood that he was speaking about them. Yeah, you think? You think that he has made this clear enough? It is hard to see now Jesus has ridden in on a donkey causing a complete circus. He goes into the temple and wrecks the whole temple business. And then when they say, who do you think you are? He tells them two stories that make it absolutely clear you guys are going straight to hell. And they realized that he was talking about them. I would say so. 
it's hard to see how Jesus is going to get out of this alive. He's not pulling any punches now. He came telling nice stories and healing people and feeding the crowds. He cast out demons. He calmed storms. He preached thoughtful sermons. But these religious leaders still didn't get it. So now, the gloves are off. Jesus has a point to make, and he is going to make this point. And you might look at that and go, you know, why do you have to be so harsh about this, Jesus? He's not being harsh. It's the most loving thing he could possibly do. He knows they're not going to hear from him very much again. He knows that there are guys among these religious leaders who really want to follow after God. And he is trying to make it clear to them that they have a decision to make and they better make it fast. So the gloves are off. Jesus is making a point and he's making it very clear. It is not enough to give lip service to God. It is not enough to give lip service to God. Jesus had already quoted Isaiah to these guys just a few chapters ago. In Isaiah, it says, rightly did, he says, Jesus says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. These are church-going folks. These are people who have a little fish on the back of their car. These are people who own several Bibles. These are people who know the words to the song even if the projector breaks. These are people who have been in the building and they have been saying the right things. And Jesus says, but your heart is far, far away from me. And now he's making himself clear again. You can't accept God's blessings and then reject his messengers and kill his son. If you do, you'll be held accountable. That's a fact that is just as true today as it was then. Yet everywhere we look, we see so-called Christians who say the right things and follow a certain number of rules and carry with them a great big leather-bound King James Bible wherever they go. And yet, they're still doing things their own way. They're not living in relationship to the God who did so much to reach out to them. On the, on the one hand, you, you have uh, people who... They're churchgoers, but they pick and choose the parts of Scripture that they like, and the other parts they toss out. And then on the other hand, you have people who uphold every word in the book, and they're very buttoned up, and they, they, they follow all the rules, and they never say the wrong thing, and they're never cut in the wrong place, and they're never drinking the wrong thing, and they're never smoking the wrong thing, and they're never going in the, where they shouldn't go, and yet, all they do is stand and judge people instead of loving them. When Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. So, so when we read this and we look at it, it's so easy. The, the Pharisees and almost all of these parables are the villains. 
And it is so easy for us to hear these stories and look at the Pharisees and go, what a bunch of scumbags these guys were. But Jesus is trying to help us to see that this is a problem in our lives too. Either way, Jesus says, you may be really liberal, you may be really conservative in your Christianity, but either way, your heart is far from me and that's a problem. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're talking about a landowner. Sorry, I keep doing that. There's a parable of the landowner that Jesus has just told. He's talking about something that is super familiar to his listeners. They all know exactly what he's talking about. It doesn't take explanation for them like it does for us because they live in this society and this is how things are done. This whole sharecropping thing is a completely normal thing for them. <coughs> Excuse me. It's very common for wealthy people to buy up land in Palestine because it's like land in California. It is fantastic for growing crops. And so in Palestine, they have lots and lots and lots of vineyards. And it is common in these days because out in the country where they grow great um, grapes for wine, there's no city, there's no um, culture, there's nothing but just empty woods and, and the rich people don't want to live there. They want to own the land because it's so productive, but they don't want to live there. So what they do is they buy the land, plant the vineyard, and then rent it out to a sharecropper who can't afford to buy his own land. And they say, you can work this land, but some of the proceeds go to me. And there would be various ways that they would do those contracts. Either they would say, there's a monthly fee, just like you pay rent on your house or a car payment or something like that. There's a monthly fee, you're going to pay me every month. Or more commonly, there would be an annual fee because it's an agrarian society. You don't have any money until the crop comes in and then you would pay. And oftentimes you wouldn't even pay with money. You would pay with a percentage of the crop or a percentage of the profit from the crop. But either way, you had to pay rent. And so this story makes perfect, perfect sense to the people who are listening in those days. They're listening. Yeah, there's a landowner and then he rents it out. And by the way, what a nice guy. He, he doesn't just buy a piece of land and then rent it out and say, you make it nice. He actually plants the vineyards, builds the walls, digs a wine press. You have to understand what a big deal this would be because there would be a public wine press in the city. You would have to take your grapes into the city, pay to use the wine press, crush the grapes there. And, but he built a wine press on this land. He built a tower. The tower would serve for security and would also serve as housing for the men who worked on this land. This is the absolute most beautiful vineyard you can imagine. He has done everything to make it right. And so he's telling this story and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, the story gets ridiculous. Whenever Jesus is telling one of these stories and he suddenly gets ridiculous... It's not because he's stupid. When Jesus gets ridiculous, it's because he's trying to point something out to us. And he's going along telling them a story that makes total sense. There's this guy, and he rents out his vineyard, and then it gets ridiculous. Let me try to help you understand. You got an eight-year-old daughter, and at bedtime, the tradition is that she gets tucked in, and then you go into bed, and you sit next to her on the side of the bed, and you tell her a bedtime story. 
something that will help her have sweet dreams. And so you, you go in and you sit down on the side of her bed and you begin to tell her, honey, once upon a time, there was a beautiful young princess and her name was Snow White. And she was beautiful just like you. And one day, she met this woman who offered her an apple, but it turned out the woman was an evil witch and the apple was poison. And when she ate the apple, she fell into a trance and she was asleep and she couldn't wake up. And the only thing that could break the spell was love's first kiss from a handsome prince. And she slept for days and weeks and months until one day, the sound of hoofprints was heard in the forest. And as the horse came around the bend and saw the beautiful girl lying on the table, the prince got off of his horse. And seeing her, he knew exactly what to do. And he went over and bent down and gently, ever so gently, kissed her on the lips. And when he kissed her, her eyes opened. And she awakened, startled, and grabbed his sword and cut off his head. <laughs> now, your daughter may not have sweet dreams, but she's remembering that story, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to make this memorable by throwing them a curveball that will cause them to go, that's absurd. This guy is such a wonderful guy. He rents out the place. He provides everything that they need. And when it's time for payment, he sends a guy to collect the payment. And you know what they did? They killed the guy. <gasps> no. They killed the guy? Wow. I bet he sent an army and wiped him out. And so what he did was, he said, it's probably a misunderstanding. And he sent some more guys. And you know what they did? They killed those guys too. <gasps> You're kidding me. They killed two sets of guys? I bet he wiped them off the face of the earth. And so then he sent some more guys. And they killed them. And he sent some more guys. And they killed them. And he thought to himself, hmm, I wonder if maybe they just don't respect these guys enough. I'll send my son. They'll certainly respect him. And so he sent his son. And they're on the edge of their seat. And they killed him too. <gasps> the son? They killed the son? Oh my gosh. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Why would they do that? What do you think, he says, the landowner will do now? Well, no, duh. He's going to wipe these guys. He is going to drop an atom bomb on his vineyard. There's going to be nothing left of these guys. He's going to destroy them. These wretches are going to find a wretched end. And immediately, he just looks at them, and they know he's talking about them. And they're like, oh, I think maybe we're the wretches. <laughs> See, this landowner could not have been better and the story gets so crazy when he says that these guys respond to the graciousness, the kindness, the patience of this landowner in such a horrible way of rejecting him. This is a crazy story, they must be thinking. Nobody is that bold. Nobody would be that brazen. How could you reject such a kind, benevolent, gracious 
landowner is this. And that was Jesus' point. And they didn't miss the point. God had been sending prophets to the people of Israel for thousands of years. And they had been rejecting the message of God again and again and again. And they would beat some of them and they would kill others. But consistently, they rejected the message. So what did he do? He sent more prophets. And what did they do? They rejected the message and killed the prophets. So what did this God do? He sent more prophets. And and those prophets would have messages that would be like, you know what, if you repent, God will bless you. And they would go, huh, let's try that. And they would repent and God would pour out blessings on the people who'd been killing his prophets. And he would pour out blessings and they would get so comfortable in the blessings, they would just stretch and relax and go, man, what a life we have made for ourselves. Let's go and worship ourselves. And God would send a prophet and the prophet would get killed and it would go again and again and again. That is the history of Israel. But God stayed patient. Right up to the time of John the Baptist. And what did they do to John the Baptist? They killed him too. And so now he had sent his son. And Jesus wanted it to be perfectly clear to them that when they rejected him and beat him and put him to death, that they would be without excuse. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've struggled putting this message together this week because the point is so obvious and clear And that is that if we don't take God seriously on his terms, we are without excuse. And I don't like to preach those messages. I like to preach messages about the patience of God, about the grace of God, about the kindness of God. But guys, all that we know about the patience and kindness and goodness and graciousness of God should lead us to understand that there comes a point when God will hold everyone accountable for rejecting that. It's not a pleasant thing to say, but it's true. And it's necessary for us to hear. Because the clock is ticking in our lives as well. And Jesus wanted it to be perfectly clear. They would be without excuse. When they stood in just a couple of days in Pilate's courtyard and shouted, crucify, 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 they would be without excuse. As they lined the roads and as they cheered for the beaten, bloodied, Jesus being spat upon and whipped and beaten, they would be without excuse. And above all, those who would be without excuse, the religious leaders who knew better. You'll be without excuse. It's a harsh parable. But Jesus is actually being gracious. He's trying to be absolutely clear about what is on the line when you reject God's authority, when you reject God's grace, when you reject God's son who only came to offer reconciliation. So many times I have heard people say things like, you know, the God I worship would never judge anyone. He accepts us all the way that we are. The God that I worship would never condemn anyone. The God that I worship would certainly never send anyone to hell. 
The God that I worship isn't like that. To which I simply say, with all due respect, really? Then the God you worship isn't real. The God you worship is not the God of the Bible. The God you worship is not the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God you worship is some sort of made up fictional character in your mind who is so weak and so timid that he lets his created beings dictate to him what he will do and has no standards for them to live by. That's not the God of the Bible. That is a made up God. Jesus made it clear and he let them jump in their own trap. What do you think? We think those wretches will come to a wretched end. And he shook his head. I don't think he smiled. I think his heart was broken. This story is meant to have the same effect on them that the the story they knew so well about David and how Nathan the prophet came to David. And what did he do? He told David a parable. Remember what happened? Uh, David had, um, had um, uh, committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. When he couldn't cover it up, he had her husband put to death. And now he's guilty of adultery and murder, and he's trying to cover the whole thing up. So he marries this woman like such a generous king. Oh, this poor woman, her husband died in the battlefield, and she's with child, happens to be David's child. And I'm just going to marry her and show everybody how wonderful I am. He was so full of sin, but he was pulling it off until God sent Nathan the prophet. It was their regular Monday morning coffee meeting. Nathan showed up, two Starbucks in his hands, hands ones to David, begins to sit down and talk. And he says, I'm going to tell you a story. There was this man. He was really, really, really rich. Lots of herds and flocks. He was, a, he was a, a farmer. And then next to him was another man who was really, really, really poor. And that man had only one animal, and it was a lamb that he loved. It was a pet. It wasn't a, a stock animal. The, 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 the lamb played with his children, slept in his house, ate from his table. It was a, it was a favored pet. One day, some travelers came to visit the wealthy man and he needed to have a feast for them. And so instead of taking one of his own sheep, his own oxen, his own cattle and slaughtering them, he went and stole the lamb from his neighbor's yard and slaughtered it and fed it to the people. By this point, David has thrown his Starbucks across the room. By this point, David is shouting, By this point, David is saying, you find me that guy and he will pay four times whatever he took and he'll be held criminally responsible for this. That guy should be destroyed for what he did. And Nathan takes a sip from his coffee and says, David, you're that man. And immediately, David's heart breaks. And immediately, he realizes he's guilty before a holy God. And immediately, he falls on his face before God and begins to cry out in repentance. And he asks God for forgiveness, takes complete responsibility for what he did. That was Jesus' hope when he told this story, to shake him up, 
to go, this is serious, you guys. This is a big deal what you've done. It's time for you to listen to God and take him seriously because I don't know how much more time you have. You've gotta take this seriously. Stop playing. Stop playing with this religion thing like it matters. You need a relationship with God and you don't have it and you're leading these people astray. You need to do something. You need to repent. And their response was to find a way to put him to death. See, what happened with David was what should have happened there. These Pharisees, knowing he was talking about them, they should have fallen on their collective faces right then and there. They should have cried out for repentance, but they didn't. Instead, they killed the landowner's son. They would immediately face the landowner's harshest judgment. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? Uh, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. They rejected the cornerstone. Listen, Jesus is the cornerstone. You can't ignore him. There's a lot of things you can do with Jesus. Ignoring him is not one of the options. He's the foundation for truth and grace. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He is the only hope that we have in this world of forgiveness and God's grace. You can't ignore him. He says this cornerstone, the one he claims to be, he says, you know what? Um, everybody stumbles over it. You're going to have to stumble over the cornerstone. You can't pretend it's not there. You're going to trip on the cornerstone. The cornerstone is going to make you fall over. And you're blessed if you stumble over the cornerstone and fall on your face. Because for those who don't trip on the cornerstone, they will be crushed by the cornerstone and obliterated into dust. Perhaps some of the people in Jesus' audience hadn't yet made up their minds about him. He had to be clear. Maybe some of the priests were trying to decide whether he's really the Messiah or not. He had to be clear. And he's saying that they couldn't really put this off any longer. Behold, today is the day of salvation. They needed to decide what they were gonna do about him. Because God had already been so patient with them. God had already given them everything that they needed to be successful. But now it was time to decide, would you stumble over the cornerstone to your benefit, or would you be crushed to dust by the cornerstone? Time was running out. The cross is just a couple of days away now, and Jesus knows it. It was time to decide what they would do with Jesus. Verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. They gathered. They said, let's take him right now. And then they looked at the crowd. They said, we better not take him now. Let's call a meeting tonight. We'll come up with a plan. We'll find a way. 
but we're going to put an end to this guy. They made their decision. They understood what Jesus was saying, and they took offense at it. And for most of them, this was a point of no return. They decided right then and there that they would do whatever it took to destroy this man who was such a threat to their power. Oh, the crowd was too big at that moment. They weren't sure that it was safe to attack him right then. But they started scheming and they started planning and they came up with a way. They would kill the son and take the inheritance for themselves. What a ridiculous idea. Jesus tried to tell them the most ridiculous story he could possibly tell them so they would see how absurd their thinking was. And all it did was solidify their ridiculous idea. They would fight against God. That's a fight that every sane person knows you can't win. So we look at them and we shake our heads at their bravado and their stupidity. But before you go too far with that kind of thinking, you might want to look in the mirror. How have you been responding to the patience and the grace of God? Are you astounded by his love for you? I mean, astounded so much so that you fall at his feet and give him the praise and the honor that he deserves? Or do you take for granted that you have a better way to live and that he'll just have to adjust to you? Well, Jesus was very blunt in his message for good reason. Let me be equally blunt with mine. Either you stumble over the cornerstone and fall on your face before him or he will crush you to dust. Maybe God's been drawing you. Maybe something's been going on in your life and you have just been gradually moving closer and closer to the end of your rope. You've been trying to find a way to do it on your own. You've been trying to make it work your way. Yes, you know about God, you've heard about God, but you're really trying to do it your way. And maybe you're just getting to this place now where you realize this cornerstone is too big to get around. I'm gonna have to deal with this. Maybe you're here today and you've never yet come into a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, you've heard the stories. Yes, you, you maybe been to church and sung the songs or whatever, but you know in your heart of hearts that you've never actually surrendered control of your life to the one God who is worthy of that. Or maybe you have surrendered control about a thousand times and we take it back and we take it back and we take it back And I think God would say to us, when are you going to stop playing with religion and take Jesus seriously? He wants only good for you. He's proven that. Maybe there's just some area of your life where you're like, I am good with Jesus. I'm 100%, well, I'm 98% good with Jesus. There's going to be this little section of my life, though, that I'm just, you know, one day maybe I'll give that to him too, like with my dying breath, so I can really enjoy my sin up until then. 
Jesus loves you too much to beat around the bush. Eternity is at stake. God has sent his son not with malice in his heart. He didn't send his son because we deserve to be punished, although we certainly deserve to be punished. He sent his son to reconcile us to him in spite of our sin. And so when the son comes, he brings this warning. If you insist on being your own God, the consequences will be great. But if you choose to let him be your God, the consequences of that are also great. So let me just close with a quote from the book of Joshua. When he stood before the people and he said, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's time for us to stop playing with religion and start walking with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are um, (laughs) aptly described as being without excuse. But thank you, thank you, thank you that we are not without grace. That you offer forgiveness, you offer love, you offer life, you offer salvation. You pour out grace upon us and, and again and again and again like a river flowing in our lives. And God, probably every one of us at some level has to hide our face when you look us in the eye. Every one of us has perhaps withheld some part of our lives and said, I'm gonna do this one on my own. I'll be my own God here. I'm gonna trust God for the salvation and some of the other things I need, but I'm gonna be my own God here. Some of us perhaps haven't even given any of our hearts to you. But you are so patient, God, and you keep reaching out to us. Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, you keep reaching out to us from your word, by your spirit, in our lives and your provision for us. You keep reaching out to us. And so today, God, help us to reach out to you. Help us to receive the gift that you're offering and to walk, truly walk in newness of life by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.